Chapter 7 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Gladstone's Marriage. In 1839, an event occurred of far greater and more abiding personal interest to Mr. Gladstone than the success or failure of any literary work could possibly have been. Gladstone was then, as he has always been since, a hard and constant reader. He had at this time seriously injured his sight by persisting in studying too much by candlelight. His physicians recommended him a complete rest somewhere in the south of Europe, and he decided upon spending the winter in Rome. In Rome, he came into companionship with his old friend, Henry Edward Manning, afterwards Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, and in Manning's company he visited Monsignor Wiseman, afterwards Cardinal Wiseman, whose appointment to the Archbishopric of Westminster caused such a commotion in England. Among the visitors in Rome that winter was Lady Glynn, widow of Sir Stephen Richard Glynn of Hodden Castle, Flintshire, Wales, and Lady Glynn's daughters. Mr. Gladstone had already some knowledge of these ladies, for he had known Lady Glynn's eldest son at Oxford and had visited him at Harden a few years before the winter in Rome. The result of the visit to Rome was that Gladstone became attached and engaged to Lady Glynn's elder daughter, Miss Catherine Glynn. On the 25th of July, 1839, he was married at Harden to Miss Glynn, and at the same time and place, the younger daughter, Miss Mary Glynn, was married to George William, the fourth Lord Littleton. Miss Catherine Glynn, now Mrs. Gladstone, was sister of Sir Stephen Glynn, and in the event of Sir Stephen's death without offspring, the Harden Castle and its property were to pass to her on behalf of her issue. Sir Stephen Glynn was the last baronet of his name, and on his death, much later, Harden passed into the hands of Mr. and Mrs. Gladstone. Much of Gladstone's later life is associated in public memory with Harden Castle. We think of him, of course, first of all in the House of Commons, then perhaps in the official residence Downing Street, London, or Carlton House Terrace, and more lately in Harden Castle. Without in the least degree invading the sacred domain of a great man's private life, it may be said that no marriage could possibly have been more happy than that of Mr. and Mrs. Gladstone. The pair were young together, became mature together, and grew old together. I do not merely mean to say that they passed their lives in the same dwelling, but what I do mean to say is that they were always thoroughly together in purpose and in spirit, in heart and in soul. There never could have been a wife more absolutely devoted to her husband and to his cause than Mrs. Gladstone. There was something unspeakably touching, even to mere and casual observers like myself, in the tender care which she always lavished upon him, a care which advancing years seemed rather to increase than to diminish. 
one was reminded sometimes of the saying of Burke that he never had an outside trouble in his life, which did not vanish at the sight of his wife when he crossed the threshold of his home. Gladstone had several children. Two of his sons were at one time members of the House of Commons. William Henry, the eldest son, has long since passed out of life. Herbert Gladstone is, I hope and fully believe, destined to carry on the renown of the name. A young man, whatever his ability, is naturally overshadowed by the fame of such a father as William Ewart Gladstone. Herbert Gladstone has kept as far as he could in the background, but he has undoubted capacity, a cool judgment, a clear head, and a ready power in debate. While he has a voice that for penetrating capacity and melodious tone brings back sometimes a delightful recollection of his father. Mr. Gladstone himself made quite lately a touching allusion to his connection with Harden Castle. It came about in this way. In March 1896, he was present at the opening of a new line of railway between Liverpool and North Wales the first sod of which he had cut in the October of 1893. In the course of his short speech, which he delivered, he recalled the memories of his boyhood in Liverpool and spoke of his more recent connection with North Wales. I remember, he said, when, as a little boy, I used to stroll upon the banks of the Mersey, now occupied for the most part by Liverpool docks, I remember how we used to look across the Mersey upon the hundred of Wirral, and upon the Welsh hills beyond, just as an Englishman standing upon the cliffs of Dover now looks across into France. In point of fact, that is a feeble illustration, because France is now far more familiar to an Englishman standing on the cliffs of Dover than either Cheshire or North Wales was to the inhabitants of Lancashire at the period of which I speak. That has all been changed by a long, a hard, and a manful struggle, and a hard stand-up fight between the great companies on the one side and the promoters of this, to all appearance, comparatively limited enterprise on the other. The good sense and the right and the true interests of the people have been with you. You have struggled and you have won. I rejoice in it. You were good enough to connect my name and the name of my wife with this enterprise, but we have no other merit than that of simply having borne such testimony as we could to the true and the right. It is quite true that this enterprise has for me a particular interest. In Liverpool, which may be considered one of its termini, I first drew the breath of life and saw the light of heaven. With Harden, if it please God, my last acquaintance with the light and with the air is likely to be connected. These two places are of great interest to me. I take them now simply as symbols of the connection which it was desirable to establish. In 1841, the liberal administration was getting into trouble. The revenue was falling, and the budget showed a very serious deficit, 
something like two millions sterling. Sir Robert Peel, with his usual astuteness, saw that the time had come for turning the Liberals out of office. Lord John Russell, as representing the government in the House of Commons, brought forward various proposals for an alteration in the adjustment of taxes so as to restore the equilibrium of finance. Sir Robert Peel opposed these measures successfully and at last brought forward a direct motion declaring want of confidence in the government and rested this declaration on the whole financial policy of the Liberals. The vote was carried by a majority, but only a majority of one. The one was enough. Nothing was left to the government but to dissolve Parliament and to appeal to the country at a general election. The result of the election was disastrous to the Liberals. The Tories came back with a large majority. According to the custom of those days, the Liberals still retained office after the declaration of the polls and presented themselves to the House of Commons as an administration. The usage then and until much later was that a government, although outvoted and defeated at a general election, should retain office until formally expelled by a vote of the House of Commons. The formal expulsion soon came. The debate on the address prolonged over three nights and finishing at three o'clock on the morning of the 28th of August, 1841, left the Liberal government in a minority of 91. Sir Robert Peel was immediately sent for by the Queen and undertook to form a ministry. Mr. Gladstone had been once more returned for Newark and was, of course, invited by Sir Robert Peel to join the new administration. It has often been stated, I do not know with what truth, that Mr. Gladstone was very anxious to become Chief Secretary to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, in other and less technical terms, Irish Secretary. Many great English statesmen, Sir Robert Peel himself among the rest, began their public career, or at least the more responsible part of it, in the office of Irish Secretary. Sir Robert Peel, however, appears to have thoroughly understood that the first tendency of Gladstone's genius was towards finance. He therefore appointed him Vice President of the Board of Trade and Master of the Mint. Mr. George Russell cites an interesting description given by the late Baron Bunsen of a dinner about this time, at which Mr. Gladstone was present on the occasion of the then King of Prussia's birthday. Never, says Baron Bunsen, was heard a more exquisite speech. It flowed like a gentle and translucent stream. We drove back to town in the clearest starlight, Gladstone continuing with unabated animation to pour forth his harmonious thoughts in melodious tones. At that time, Mr. Gladstone was greatly interested in the scheme for the setting up of an Anglican bishopric at Jerusalem. Baron Bunsen was one of the most remarkable men of his time. Of poor parentage and obscure birth, 
he made himself famous as a linguist and a scientific scholar. The Edinburgh Review said of him that he was endowed by nature with the warmest and broadest sympathies. His knowledge was vast and varied. To no field of intellectual research was he a stranger. He was, for some twenty years, secretary to the Prussian embassy at Rome, and at the time when we met him in the company of Mr. Gladstone, he had just been appointed Prussian ambassador to England. He had a great love of ecclesiastical as well as of classical history, and between him and Mr. Gladstone there would, of course, have been a natural sympathy. He acquired, says the Edinburgh Review, a position and an influence in English society which had never before been possessed by a German diplomatist. There is something charming in that description of the return to London, in the clearest starlight, Mr. Gladstone pouring forth his harmonious thoughts in melodious tones. His new office was exactly the position for which Mr. Gladstone was by nature best suited. There was a revised tariff in 1842, which abolished or else greatly lessened duties in the case of 1,200 articles liable to be taxed. Mr. Gladstone took the leading part in the preparation of this new tariff, and of course not only in its preparation but in its exposition and its defense. Then perhaps for the first time he displayed his extraordinary powers as a financier and as a parliamentary debater. He had to go through every minutest detail of his scheme in the House of Commons. He had to answer every objection, to clear up every misunderstanding, to reply again and again on the same question until he had fully impressed his meaning on the intelligence of the House of Commons. He showed the most minute acquaintance with every part of the country's commerce. He proved himself practically acquainted with even the smallest details of its commercial business, and the whole house at once recognized in him a master of financial statesmanship. All contemporary writers unite in bearing testimony to the extraordinary impression he produced on the House of Commons. For it has to be observed that a man might have had all the commercial knowledge and all the mastery of facts and all the skill of argument, and yet not have been a fascinating parliamentary orator. But this was what Mr. Gladstone then and forever after proved himself to be. Tariffs and taxation and commercial comparisons are generally considered somewhat dry and tiresome subjects. Even those who want to know all about them will listen sometimes to their careful exposition only because they want to get the knowledge and have to listen while it is being expounded. But Mr. Gladstone could make dry bones of finance live again. He could brighten the dullest financial subject with what might almost be called the musical touch of genius. That was the quality which he then, for the first time, displayed in full to the House of Commons. In this way, he was like Peel. People, indeed, then began to speak of him as a pony Peel. In after years, the public began to recognize that the pupil had surpassed the master. 
from the time of the debates on the revised tariff, it was quite evident that Gladstone was the great coming financial minister. It was evident, too, that he was the great coming parliamentary orator. His admission to the cabinet was only a question of opportunity. All the time, however, he still kept up his studies in ecclesiastical history, his readings in the great classic poets, and his interest in all questions that concerned education and social improvement. From some of his letters written at the very time when he was thus impressing the House of Commons as the rising financial statesman of England, one might almost be led to believe that he was thinking nothing about finance, that tariffs and duties were matters of no concern to him, and that he was wholly absorbed in patristic literature or in the medieval schools of philosophy or in the art of the Renaissance or in the marvels of the ancient and modern potteries. Nothing that was interesting came amiss to him. He was as fond of receiving as of giving out information. He delighted in meeting any stranger who could give him some new idea or some new suggestion. Life must have been radiantly happy for him at that time, when with all the world to interest him, he must have had the consciousness that with him a great political career was just about to begin. We shall see before long how ready he was, on a point of conscience, to risk the chances of that career. In 1843, Mr. Gladstone obtained for the first time a place in the cabinet. His reputation had been growing so steadily that everyone took it for granted that his elevation to cabinet rank was only a question of opportunity and that the first time the vacancy occurred the position would be offered to him. So indeed the event proved. Lord Ripon resigned his place as president of the Board of Trade and became president of the Board of Control a board established by Pitt to control the affairs of India, and Mr. Gladstone succeeded him in the Board of Trade and became a member of the Cabinet. His course now seemed to be clearly marked out. He had attained the position which everyone had long believed him destined to occupy, and there was nothing for him but to go on rising and rising step by step. He had never pushed himself he had never spoken in the House when there was not a genuine occasion for him to speak. He had kept himself in the background, so far as it was possible for a man of such gifts to be kept in the background. His success had not been a sudden blaze, but rather a steady growth of light. Now, however, that he seemed to have found his place, he was suddenly compelled to abandon it. No outer force of compulsion was applied to him, but the working of his own conscience dictated and enforced the step he was to take. In the earlier days of the session of 1845, Sir Robert Peel proposed to advance a certain way toward the propitiation of Irish public opinion. Sir Robert Peel had had this course strongly pressed upon him for some time by the Irish national representatives and by the Roman Catholic priesthood of Ireland. He resolved, therefore, to establish certain non-sectarian colleges in Ireland 
and also to increase the grant to the College of Maynooth, a college intended for the exclusive education of Roman Catholics, and especially for the education of Roman Catholic priests. The college had had a small grant for a considerable time, which was given chiefly with the hope of encouraging Irish students for the Catholic priesthood to remain at home and get their teaching there instead of seeking it, as so many of them had had to seek it in France and Italy and Spain. Mr. Gladstone was no enemy to the Maynooth grant, or even to its increase as he afterwards proved. But he thought that the proposals of the government put him into a position of much conscientious difficulty. Was he to pledge himself to support the measure which he had not yet fully considered, or was he simply to retain his place in the cabinet, as so many another man would have done, and let the prime minister have his way, or was he to retire from the government altogether? Now there is a strong objection felt in England to any member of a government who suddenly retires from it because of what the ruder public opinion regards as over-conscientious scruples. A man who takes such a course is very apt to find himself left in almost complete isolation. You can't count on him, practical statesmen say. You don't know at what critical moment he may find that his conscience is troubling him, and that he is bound to abandon his post and go apart into a corner and think the whole thing over in the depths of his moral consciousness. To be considered eccentric or quixotic is almost fatal to a rising administrator in the House of Commons where the principle of what is called common sense is encouraged in a domination which highly wrought temperaments and intellects sometimes find it impossible to endure. Many of Mr. Gladstone's closest friends strongly urged him to conquer his scruples and to remain in the cabinet. One of those who gave him this advice was Archdeacon Manning, who had not then passed over to the Roman Catholic Church. Archdeacon Manning pointed out to him that his influence in the cabinet would be of immense service to the Church of England, and that his withdrawal from office could not fail to do damage to its interests. The same sort of advice was given to him by other friends, each from his own different point of view. If you leave the government just now, said one, on this particular question, you are committed to oppose them on this particular question when it comes to be discussed as a government measure, and there you are. Your time and your gifts as a financial administrator all thrown away on a mere matter of religious agitation. Think, said others again, how much we all expected of you in the way of genuine social and educational reform and now, because of some curious scruple, you are going to kick over the traces and get out of the administration altogether. Gladstone, however, remained quite firm. The opinions that other men regarded as mere fastidious scruples were sacred principles to him. He remained fixed in his intention, and he explained his feelings very fully and candidly. He intended, he said, to resign his place in the administration, his first place in the cabinet, 
but he firmly declared that his resignation of office was not necessarily to be followed by an opposition to the scheme of the government, of which he was no longer to be a member. My whole purpose was, he explained in a letter, to place myself in a position in which I should be free to consider my course without being liable to any just suspicion on the ground of personal interest. It is not profane, if I now say, with a great price obtained I this freedom. The political association which I stood was to me, at the time, the alpha and omega of public life. The government of Sir Robert Peel was believed to be of immovable strength. My place as president of the Board of Trade was at the very kernel of its most interesting operations, for it was in progress from year to year with continually waxing courage toward the emancipation of industry, and therein toward the accomplishment of another great and blessed work of public justice. Giving up what I highly prized, I felt myself open to the charge of being opinionated and wanting in deference to really great authorities, and I could not but know that I should inevitably be regarded as fastidious and fanciful, fitter for a dreamer, or possibly a schoolman, than for the active purposes of public life in a busy and moving age. These words reveal the whole nature of the man. Mr. Gladstone then resigned his position as a cabinet member of his great friend's administration. But although he resigned his place, he nevertheless supported the increased grant to the College of Maynooth by voice and vote. Had he been a man of less original power and genius, such a course of action might have rendered him hopeless for his whole life as a leading member of any possible administration. Being a statesman of supreme genius and command, he had, of course, to be put later on into a position befitting his political and financial capacity. But what I especially wish to direct attention to is the fact that Gladstone was not by any means regarded at that time as a statesman of such supreme political and financial genius. He was accepted as a very rising man who was almost sure to become, before long, a Chancellor of the Exchequer. But he was not regarded as what Lord Palmerston once called the inevitable man, and there was no reason why, if he had made a political mistake and shown an over-fastidious mind, he should not have passed, as others had done, out of the running for high administrative office. Men had not then in England imported from the political life of the United States the epithet, a crank. But the reality of the description was quite understood. They had in Parliament then, as we have now, many cranks, and to be a crank is to be a failure. It might have been thought at that time, which had not the experience of our time, that William Ewart Gladstone was going to turn out a mere crank, when for his scruples about the Maynooth grant he resigned his place in the cabinet and in the administration of Sir Robert Peel. I am very anxious to direct the especial attention of my readers to this, as it now seems, quite unimportant episode in the career of Mr. Gladstone. It is necessary to begin at the beginning, 
and this is the beginning of one chapter of illustration of Mr. Gladstone's character as a statesman. If we do not understand him by this revelation of his nature and his temperament, we shall never understand him at all. The whole question then at issue has been long since settled and is all but forgotten. As I have said, Mr. Gladstone actually supported the government in the measure brought in to increase the grant to the College of Maynooth. He spoke at some length in support of the increased grant. Then why did he resign his seat in the cabinet because a measure was to be introduced which on its introduction he cordially supported? Here we get at a study of the character of the man he had not made up his mind as to the purpose of the bill when it was submitted to the cabinet. He could not pledge himself to support it and to speak for it. He thought it quite likely that it would commend itself to his maturer judgment, and at all events he told all his friends that he had not the least idea of pledging himself to vote against it. But he could not just then see his way and he preferred not to take any responsibility for the measure, of which up to the time of its expected introduction he had not been able to make up his mind altogether to approve. Just think what an absurdity this must have seemed to the hack ministerialist of the time. Fancy what the tapers and tadpoles, the wishies and washies of Mr. Disraeli's novels would have thought of it. Only fancy, this young fellow Gladstone, who had just got into the cabinet, already feeling scruples of conscience about obeying the dictation of his chief, and actually giving up his place in the government, just because his own absurd conscience doesn't quite see its way in that particular direction. Well, at all events, there is one comfort. We have heard the last of this young Gladstone. Nobody will ever offer him a seat in a cabinet again. Sensible men can't do with fellows of that kind. He seemed a coming man, and now he's gone. End of chapter 7